There are those who believe that near-death experiences are evidence for continuity of the human soul after death, for the existence of God in the afterlife. The argument depends upon the claim that the brain, in the act of shutting down and dying, cannot account for such experiences. The believers assume that near-death experiences are the rare occasions upon which somebody returns to life after the soul has stepped out of the body and begun a path to another world, usually by way of a tunnel-like passage. The soul, in these cases, has turned about and repossessed the body which is no longer dead. We know about all of this because the survivor can tell us. But how? They have memories of the experience, which they can draw upon to provide the report to us. Memories are a function of the brain, not the soul, whatever that would mean. So the brain has necessarily undergone change in accordance with the experience of dying, or else the attendant ghost would have no means of telling us what had occurred. This implies that no memory or report could do the job of providing evidence for life after death. Okay. But perhaps the believers are onto something important if it turns out that brain activity cannot be shown to account for the near-death experience. We can at least approach the problem empirically. In The Believing Brain, by Michael Shermer, he writes, quote, Since the advent of powerful jet planes capable of such G-force accelerations that pilots can lose consciousness during aerial combat maneuvering, the U.S. Air Force and Navy have undertaken a number of studies on how to fight what is called G-lock, or G-force-induced loss of consciousness, including special flight suits and training in centrifuges. Dr. James Winnery was hired by the military to direct the training and study of pilots at the Naval Air Warfare Center centrifuge in Warminster, Pennsylvania. He discovered a remarkable phenomenon. The majority of pilots experienced what Winnery called dreamlets, or brief episodes of tunnel vision, sometimes with a bright light at the end of the tunnel, as well as a sense of floating, sometimes paralysis, and often euphoria in a feeling of peace and serenity when they came back to consciousness. Sound familiar? These are also the characteristics of a near-death experience, first popularized in 1975 by Raymond Moody in his book Life After Life, and now familiar to everyone by the unique set of signs that include one, a floating or flying feeling in which you can look down and see your body, commonly called an out-of-body experience. Two, passing through a tunnel, hallway, or spiral chamber, sometimes with a bright light at the end of it. And three, perhaps seeing loved ones who have already passed away and or a godlike image or divine figure. Winnery was able to induce the first two of these three more than a thousand times in 16 years of study in the controlled conditions of the centrifuge, even videotaping the pilots when they passed out and noting that this is when they had the experience, leaving no doubt as to the cause, hypoxia or oxygen deprivation to the cortex, unquote. This is interesting. A lack of blood flow to the brain can cause tunneling of vision, often with a bright light at its center, as well as the experience of floating free of the body. It makes sense that people put in these conditions would have a successive increase in these sensations as the centrifuge is accelerating faster and faster. Presumably, under some level of force, these altered perceptions begin to take place. Then they get more and more intense, or progress further and further, until there is a total loss of consciousness. In fact, this is a nice model for near-death experience, because the, the approach to death, as it were, is stretched out over time, rather than all at once, as might occur in, say, a firing squad or a guillotine. The latter has some other problems worth considering. 
First of all, it's quite difficult to secure volunteers for a guillotine death experiment, and I imagine the legal consent paperwork is a real headache. Secondly, the near-death experience in the case of decapitation tends to be succeeded immediately by an actual death, so it doesn't strictly qualify as near-death per se. And how do we collect the results? Do we interview the head afterward? What if it isn't in the mood to share? People are weird like that. One minute they're happy to contribute to scientific knowledge, gregarious and helpful, during the initial interview. But they clam up and go mute as soon as they find themselves bodiless at the bottom of a basket. It's as if they can't be bothered to even focus on the survey questions. Lazy. I'm sure you won't be surprised to learn that near-death experiences do not accompany such swift and decisive means of dying. I suggest that a sudden acceleration in a super-fast centrifuge up to high g-forces would cause immediate loss of consciousness with no unusual perceptions on the way, just as we would expect in the case of a sudden violent death. I also observe an important distinction here. The centrifuge was able to produce the out-of-body and floating down a tunnel parts of the experience, but what about seeing lost relatives or feeling the presence of God? Oliver Sacks wrote about near-death experiences in his book Hallucinations. Sachs also refers to the work by Moody, but gives us a little more detail about the experience here. He wrote, quote, The term near-death experience was introduced by Raymond Moody in the 1975 book Life After Life. Moody, culling information from many interviewees, delineated a remarkably uniform and stereotyped set of experiences common to many near-death experiences. A majority of people felt that they were being drawn into a dark tunnel and then propelled towards a brightness, and finally they sensed a limit or barrier ahead. Most interpreted this as a boundary between life and death. Some experienced a rapid replay or review of events in their lives. Others saw friends and relatives. In a typical near-death experience, all this was suffused with a sense of peace and joy so intense that being forced back might be accompanied by a strong sense of regret. Such experiences were felt as real, more real than real, as was often commented. Many of Moody's interviewees favored a supernatural interpretation for these remarkable experiences, but others have increasingly tended to regard them as hallucinations, albeit of an extraordinarily complex kind. A number of researchers have sought a natural explanation in terms of brain activity and blood flow, since near-death experiences are especially associated with cardiac arrest and may also occur in faints, when blood pressure plunges, the face becomes ashen, and the head and brain are drained of blood. Kevin Nelson and his colleagues at the University of Kentucky have presented evidence suggesting that the compromise of cerebral blood flow, there is a dissociation of consciousness so that although awake, the subjects are paralyzed and subjected to the dreamlike hallucinations characteristic of REM sleep, in a state, therefore, with resemblances to sleep paralysis. Added to this are various special features. The dark tunnel is correlated, Nelson feels, with the compromise of blood flow to the retinas, unquote. This last bit agrees with what was observed with the military pilots. If Nelson is right to compare these experiences to a state of REM sleep, then it must be remembered that dreaming is an active process in the brain. Why should it occur? Why should any complex hallucination occur under conditions of hypoxia? Are there other ways we can model or induce near-death experiences or something like them? The following is from a paper called DMT Models the Near-Death Experience by Timmerman et al., published in Frontiers in Psychology in 2018. Quote, Near-death experiences are complex experiential episodes that occur in association with death or the perception that it is impending. 
prospective studies with cardiac arrest patients indicate that the incidence of near-death experiences vary between 2 and 18%, depending on what criteria are used to determine them. Although there is no universally accepted definition of the near-death experience, common features include feelings of inner peace, out-of-body experiences, traveling through a dark region or void commonly associated with a tunnel, visions of a bright light, entering into an unearthly other realm, and communicating with sentient beings. Reviewing the phenomenology of near-death experiences, we've been struck by similarities with the experience evoked by the classic serotonergic psychedelic, DMT. Commonly described features of the DMT experience include a feeling of transcending one's body and entering into an alternative realm, an acoustic perception of a high-pitched whining or whirring sound during the onset of the experience, perceiving and communicating with presences or entities, plus reflections on death dying in the afterlife. Furthermore, the reported vividness of both subjective experiences have led to near-death experience experiencers and DMT users describing the states they enter as realer than real, unquote. It's worth noting that the cause of death, which occurs when cardi cardiac arrest is fatal, is the reduction of blood flow and therefore oxygen delivery to the brain. So if there is an experience common to being centrifuged and having your heart stop, that's where it lies, in hypoxia. That explains the similarity between G-lock and near-death experience. A rapid sequence of events takes place when the flow of oxygen-rich blood ceases nurturing the brain. This is a reduction in activity, right? A shutting down sequence. Sometimes a person remains conscious long enough to experience it, first perhaps a tunneling of the vision, then a feeling of floating toward a bright light, and so on. Then total loss of consciousness. But what about DMT? And what about the sense that there are beings present, or even God? A shutdown sequence driven by hypoxia is a matter of reduction, right? Less function. So the narrowing of vision, a loss of the sense of embodiment in space, these might be simple losses of normal brain function. Most of the time, even in cardiac arrest, survivors do not report a near-death experience. This makes sense. They have simply lost consciousness without delay. The extraordinary case occurs when consciousness is sustained for several seconds or minutes, enabling coherent and reportable ordeals. It might have occurred to you that DMT doesn't work by starving the brain of oxygen, and it doesn't result in loss of consciousness or the brain damage that we would expect it to cause if that's what it did. A loss of oxygen to the brain is what we would expect from a toxic gas like carbon monoxide or from holding your breath underwater for too long. There is obviously something else happening in the brain on DMT, and thus something else happening in the near-death experience in order to account for the out-of-body, otherworldly events and the perception of beings. Timmerman et al. sums up their research findings here, quote, This study sought to examine the degree to which features commonly reported in near-death experiences are elicited by the potent serotonergic psychedelic DMT in a placebo-controlled study. Results revealed that all 13 participants scored above the standard threshold for a near-death experience in relation to their DMT experiences, and 15 of the 16 near-death experience items were rated significantly higher under DMT compared to placebo, with 10 of these reaching statistical significance after multiple testing correction. Especially strong overlap was seen between DMT-induced near-death type experiences and mystical type experiences, with the mystical factor of the MEQ, 
which contains items such as sense of being at a spiritual height and experience of oneness or unity with objects and or persons in your surroundings, showing the highest relationship with near-death experience total scores. Intriguingly, DMT-induced near-death experience scores were significantly correlated with baseline-measured delusional thinking. Perhaps most interesting of all, however, when these DMT data were compared with those from a matched sample of actual near-death experiences, a comparable profile was evident, with few discernible differences between the experiences of the actual near-death experience cases and those induced by DMT. Taken together, these results reveal a striking similarity between the phenomenology of near-death experiences and experiences induced by the classic serotonergic psychedelic, DMT, unquote. This is interesting, too. They write, quote, The near-death experience has been associated with long-term positive changes in psychological well-being and related outcomes. More specifically, greater concern for others, reductions in distress associated with the prospect of dying, increased appreciation for nature, reduced interest in social status and possessions, as well as increased self-worth, have all been observed and or described post-near-death experience. Relatedly, recent results from studies with psychedelic compounds have shown similar long-term positive changes. For example, reduced death anxiety, pro-ecological behavior and nature-relatedness, significant clinical improvements in depressed patients and recovering addicts, and lasting improvements in psychological well-being in healthy populations have all been observed. Thus, overlap between near-death and psychedelic experiences may extend beyond the acute experience into longer-term psychological changes, unquote. These observations are striking. I've discussed with you before on many occasions the potentially life-changing mystical experiences brought about by high-dose psychedelics. These drugs, LSD, psilocybin, and DMT, directly interact with serotonin receptors across the brain and apparently result in a massive increase in the coherence of brain activity. This is a flood of integrated cortical activity, by no means a reduction in it, as we would expect if the cortex were simply deprived of oxygen. Are the believers right? If the brain is underactive following cardiac arrest or high-speed centrifugation, if the cortex is shutting down, then how can we account for the out-of-body experience, the visitation of dead relatives, the presence of God, the realer-than-realness? This year, Raul Vicente et al. published a paper called Enhanced Interplay of Neuronal Coherence and Coupling in the Dying Human Brain. In the abstract, they write, quote, The neurophysiological footprint of brain activity after cardiac arrest and during near-death experiences is not well understood. Although a hypoactive state of brain activity has been assumed, experimental animal studies have shown increased activity after cardiac arrest particularly in the gamma band. Resulting from hypercapnia prior to the cessation of cerebral blood flow after cardiac arrest, no study has yet investigated this matter in humans. Here we present continuous EEG recording from a dying human brain obtained from an 87-year-old patient undergoing cardiac arrest after traumatic subdural hematoma. An increase of absolute power in gamma activity in the narrow and broad bands and a decrease in theta power is seen after suppression of bilateral hemispheric responses. After cardiac arrest, delta, beta, alpha, and gamma power were decreased, but a higher percentage of relative gamma power was observed when compared to the interictal interval. 
cross-frequency coupling revealed modulation of left hemispheric gamma activity by alpha and theta rhythms across all windows, even after cessation of cerebral blood flow. The strongest coupling is observed for narrow and broadband gamma activity by the alpha waves during left-sided suppression and after cardiac arrest. Albeit the influence of neuronal injury and swelling, our data provide the first evidence from the dying human brain in a non-experimental, real-life acute care clinical setting and advocate that the human brain may possess the capability to generate coordinated activity during the near-death period, unquote. This was a chance EEG recording session in which the patient died. Interesting. They report an increase in gamma power and enhanced neuronal coherence. Enhanced? This might account for the kind of extraordinary experiences some people have reported. Moreover, this is just the kind of thing we would expect to show up in a DMT study. And haven't I seen something like this before? I met with a researcher who was doing something like this when I was a graduate student at Michigan. Here it is. Surge of Neurophysiological Coherence and Connectivity in the Dying Brain by Gimo Borjigan et al. at the University of Michigan in 2013. They reported, quote, The brain is assumed to be hypoactive during cardiac arrest. However, the neurophysiological state of the brain immediately following cardiac arrest has not been systematically investigated. In this study, we performed continuous electroencephalography in rats undergoing experimental cardiac arrest and analyzed changes in power density, coherence, directed connectivity, and cross-frequency coupling. We identified a transient surge of synchronous gamma oscillations that occurred within the first 30 seconds after cardiac arrest and preceded isoelectric EEG. Gamma oscillations during cardiac arrest were global and highly coherent. Moreover, this frequency band exhibited a striking increase in anterior-posterior directed connectivity and tight phase coupling in, to both theta and alpha waves. High-frequency neurophysiological activity in the near-death state exceeded levels found during the conscious waking state. These data demonstrate that the mammalian brain can, albeit paradoxically, generate neural correlates of heightened conscious processing at near death, unquote. In this study, they saw increased gamma along with heightened neuronal coherence. And this is important because Borjigan did it in rats. That means that not only is the heightened cortical activity a perfect candidate for the cause of extraordinary experiences following a precipitous drop in blood pressure, this isn't even special to the human being. Well, the nature of the experience will depend on the nature of the organism's cortex, surely. But the mechanism in the brain is shared among mammals. If I had to guess, I would suggest that there is a rapid neurochemical event which occurs as an emergency action in response to a sudden drop-off in blood pressure. It might be driven, for example, by norepinephrine or dopamine, or probably a massive cascade of actions initiated in the brainstem reticular formation. This is highly hallucinogenic, and culminates in a release of endorphins, which account for the sense of tranquility, which is often reported. This emergency activity is, ten is intended as a last chance for survival, to hang on to consciousness in a moment of dire circumstance. But the drop in blood pressure is too severe for this to work. As a result, rather than simply dropping out of consciousness into oblivion, the mind persists to bear witness to the brain shutting down, with a narrowing of vision, a sense of floating or flying, and a high-dose drug-like experience. The effect is like taking DMT while vigorously spinning in a human centrifuge. 
far out, man.